This teaching comes to you from the team at St Mark's Darling Point, Sydney. We hope that it blesses you. Let's pray. Our Lord and loving Heavenly Father, we do ask for your blessing upon us today as we look into your word and as we think about uh, the incredible news of the resurrection of the dead. And in Jesus' name we ask, Amen. Uh, it'd be great if you had that passage Nancy just read open in front of you from 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Uh, this is our fourth ser- ser- sermon in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. It's that significant a passage that I've wanted to go th- slowly through it and take in its extraordinary news. But today I want to begin by uh, letting you know that you will never reach your potential. One of the great lies of modern self-help and education is that there's a glorious you that you can become if only you try hard enough or diet hard enough or learn enough or whatever it might be. If only you try hard enough, you will become that person that's lurking inside of you. But you won't reach your potential for two reasons. Firstly, most of us have no clue what our real human potential is. And so when we aim for our potential, we're aiming at the wrong thing. We see our potential, don't we, as a a physical ideal of beauty or muscularity or prosperity or celebrity. That's our contemporary definition of glory or immortality. If only we find the one thing we want to do and persist at doing it, we'll be able to stand on the mountaintop of realised potential to the applause of everyone else, or at least they'll follow us on Instagram and we'll become an influencer. It's what everyone wants now. Now, as we'll see a little bit later, that's not what the purpose of human life is, not at all. But the second reason that you won't reach your potential is that you are fatally flawed. I've really got the compliments coming this morning. You are tragic, you see. The thing about, if you go back to your uh, year eight English, the thing about uh, tragic heroes, people like Hamlet or Macbeth or Othello, is that they are noble, they have good qualities, but something in their character stops them from being what they ought to be. And there's something piercingly accurate about this as a diagnosis of what we are like as a race and as individuals. We get glimpses of human glory, but these glimpses are marred. They're distorted. If you look at yourself, you can see the outline of someone extraordinary, but you can also see how faint and distorted that outline has become. I feel that every day. I imagine what the day will hold and what I can be in it. And then I watch as I fail to be that Michael that I've imagined in small and in not-so-small ways. And so you and I are haunted by the parasitic presence of death, which ultimately is the great barrier to all our human potential. It snuffs it out, doesn't it? It puts a full stop in our way. The philosopher Ernest Becker wrote in his book, The Denial of Death, back in the 1970s, the idea of death, the fear of it, haunts the human animal like nothing else. 
And so we make ourselves frantically busy in order to mask this fear. We have fear of missing out because you only live once. FOMO because of YOLO. But it won't do any good. As the 19th century poet Emily Dickinson once said uh, in her sweet way, she said, because I could not stop for death, he kindly stopped for me. In first century Corinth, as we've seen, things were not much different. The Corinthians were as entranced as we are by the achievements of human glory and immortality. You just have to look at the glorious human forms in the statues of ancient Greece with muscles, rippling off muscles. And that's the women. They were surrounded by supposed ideals of human perfection, just as we are. And then they were then enthralled, as we are, by the various paths to get there. Would it be through getting the perfect body, through athletics in the gymnasium? Would it be through the perfect mind, through debating ideas in the schools of philosophy, in the Areopagus? Would it be through becoming more moral or more religious? Or would it be through the experience of pure pleasure? It's hedonism, the path to human achievement. And Paul Taking all this into account has got something to say. Have a look at verse 50 of chapter 15. Basically, he says, no to all those paths to human potential. What I am saying, brothers and sisters, is this. In other words, let me sum up what I've been saying. Flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. You can't just evolve into your best self. The way we are now, though we see glimpses of immortality in us, is not able to ascend to the heavens. As we are, we can't achieve God's kingdom. And there's no training you can undertake that will get you there. We're simply incompatible with the world to come. We need a total upgrade. And one of the great uh, modern expressions that I really love is uh, putting lipstick on a pig. Have you heard this one? Putting lipstick on a pig. When you put lipstick on a pig, it's a way of saying that the outside, changing the outside doesn't change the true nature of something or someone. You put lipstick on a pig and it is still a pig. It's a perhaps more pleasant looking and attractive pig, but a pig nonetheless putting tablecloths in McDonald's doesn't change the reality that the food is only average, for example. Paul is saying to us here today that all our attempts to change are really just putting lipstick on a pig, ultimately, because we cannot, as flesh and blood, inherit the kingdom of God. Flesh and blood, and I'm sure your flesh and blood is glorious and wonderful, but no matter It will die. Flesh and blood is redundant. It's redundant as a Betamax video. The fact that none of you know what I'm talking about, or at least anyone under 40 doesn't know what I'm talking about, tells you how redundant it is. What we need is to be changed. The transformation must come from above. And here's the thing, says Paul. 
that day of transformation will one day come. We know that it will come because Jesus himself has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of the harvest that will one day be brought in. And you'll remember that Paul outlines his belief in Jesus' resurrection at the beginning of this chapter through the witness of the Old Testament, the eyewitnesses who saw Jesus alive, and through his own experience with the risen Lord that changed his life. But our change will one day come, he says, in an instant, in the twinkling of an eye, when the last trumpet will sound. Thank you, Simon. <laughs> and that was, that was more or less Handel's version of how it might sound. Herald, that heralding, that moment that heralds the great resurrection of the dead. And on that day, your dead, decaying mortal body will put on immortality. You will be changed into a form that means you are now compatible with the kingdom of God. Will there be an actual trumpet and who will play it? What tune will they play? Well, I think the point here is that the last trumpet symbolises the note of the moment of victory. A victory has been won. It's a triumphant blast, not the last post. It signals the complete victory of Jesus Christ over all things, over sin and evil and corruption and death. Whether an angel blasts a literal trumpet or not, it's a moment of complete resolution and conquest. That's what Paul goes on to say. When this moment of transformation happens, when the dead are released from the grave, then at that moment, as the great English poet John Donne said, one short sleep past, we wake eternally, and death shall be no more. Death Thou shalt die. Paul quotes, picking up pretty much the same thought, quotes two Old Testament prophets, Isaiah and Hosea. There's the saying from Isaiah, first of all, death has been swallowed up in victory. Victory, I imagine, is being like this great mouth that swallows up death, that just consumes it, eats it, makes it completely go away. It disappears and then there's the two taunting questions from the prophet Hosea addressed to death. Death is personified and the questions are taunting death. Where, O oh death, is your victory? Where, O oh death, is your sting? What weapons have you got, death? What threat are you anymore? What hold do you have? What victory do you have over human beings now? At a funeral or in the hospital, it may indeed appear as if death has had the final victory. It may appear as if death is that ultimate barrier through which no one can pass or no one can pass in return. I once was talking to a funeral director and I said to him, uh, haven't seen you for a while. And he said, uh, I said, is business slow? And he said, don't worry, everyone's a client. It's great funeral director humour. But Paul says here, no, 
The grave cannot contain Jesus, and so it will not contain those who are in him. And that's because its sting has been drawn. You can imagine death like an angry and vicious bee, or maybe a hornet, inflicting on us its lethal sting. A sting of death, what makes death really hurt, really unnatural, is sin. Death comes into the world as God's judgment on human sin. Because of sin, death not only robs us of our potential, it exposes us to judgment. It defeats us and destroys us. But Jesus takes away death's sting by dying on the cross for sin and rising to new life. He takes the poisonous charge that the barb is inflicted on his body. He absorbs the full impact of everything that sin could throw at us. And yet, it does not defeat him. He breaks the power of the law to condemn us. As Paul writes in Romans chapter 8, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ, for in him the spirit of life set me free from the law and sin of sin and death. And here in 1 Corinthians 15, 57, Paul cries out, and it's an exultant note. It's a trumpet blast of triumph, this verse 57. Thanks be to God who gives us the victory through Jesus Christ our Lord. Christ, our champion, won a victory in which we share. He gives us the victory, though he it was who defeated death, who wrestled death and defeated him. It's a victory in which we have the benefits. We can enjoy the triumph. I recently read a great book by Greg Sheridan of the Australian newspaper called God is Good for You. I encourage you to read it. It's a very interesting book from a contemporary journalist. And in it, he interviews a number of Australian politicians who say they are active Christians. We actually, it, it, it's fair to say there are more active Christians amongst the political class than there are amongst the journalists who report on them, which sometimes leads to that sort of misunderstanding, I think, of, uh, of faith. But Greg Sheridan, is a, as an active and practising Catholic, interviewed these uh, po politicians. Uh, from Christina Keneally, a current sitting senator, to ex-Prime Minister John Howard. And uh, there's more, as I say, more Christian politicians than you'd think. But what was quite surprising and sad was how few of them said anything positive or clear about the life to come. Former Treasurer Peter Costello said, I do believe in the immortality of the soul, a part of us deep down that even death doesn't extinguish. Former Prime Minister, Labor Prime Minister Kevin Rudd said, the actual nature of the world that comes after death, I don't know. Former Prime Minister John Howard said, I have a general hope that there's something after life, that in some general way you have contact with your parents. And Senator Penny Wong, again from the Labor side, said, I don't know. I don't believe we just end. What Paul gives us in 1 Corinthians 15 is a far more specific, a far richer hope than these vague statements. There's nothing vague or waffly about what Paul's got to say here. When the trumpet sounds, the dead will be raised. 
incorruptible, immortal. Your mortal body will be transformed into an immortal body. Your inglorious body will be transformed into a glorious body. Your body with all its latent and unrealized potential will be the body it was made to be. Like a seed becoming a plant, like a caterpillar becoming a butterfly. You will share in the victory over the grave and over sin, its terrible compadre, its terrible ally. And you will be, yes, the person you were created to be, finally free of disappointment and regret and injury and sorrow and shame. But this hope of a future transformation is also transformative of the present in which we live. Now notice how Paul ends the chapter. We've got to verse 57, but look what he does in verse 58. What should the Corinthians be doing now since the dead will be raised? Should they go and form a a community away from all danger and just kind of wait? Should they just sort of do nothing since it'll all happen? The change will one day come. Well, What does he tell them? Therefore, my beloved, be steadfast, immovable, always excelling in the work of the Lord, because you know that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. So two things then. Be steadfast and immovable and excel in the Lord's work. Why be steadfast? Well, he's saying here, don't give up on Jesus because Jesus is where history is going. Jesus is where the action is. Jesus is where hope lies. Don't be Christians made of jelly. Don't lose your hope because your hope in Christ is something rock solid. Christ has already walked free from the grave. So hope in him. Now Christians, as Paul well knew, can be jelly-like because of persecution or distraction. Both were true for the Corinthians. I think for us it's probably more likely distraction that turns us into jelly than persecution. There are lots of things to divert us from Christ in the present time. Our pleasures and our pains, our busyness, our obsessions, our desire to realize our potential as we understand it. But you know, when I say no, you have the power and the hope of the resurrection of the dead. You know how the end of the story turns out. So don't let go of Jesus Christ. Don't be distracted by fripperies, by trivia, by insignificance. Be steadfast in him. Weather all storms. Keep your eyes on the future, the future in which you already live, the future that has already walked out of the tomb. And while you're being steadfast and immovable, excel in the work of the Lord. Excel in the work of the Lord. And what is the work of the Lord? What has Paul got in mind here? Well, in particular, when Paul talks about the work of the Lord, he, he means that work which builds up his people, God's people. It builds up the church, loving one another and sharing Christ. The kind of statement we say about St. Mark's itself, that we're transformed by the, the grace of God, which is the resurrection power of God, to love one another, to serve our city and to share Christ. That's the work of the Lord that comes out of knowing about the res- having the resurrection life. 
This work of the Lord is resurrection work. So aim for top grades in that. Excel in that. You and I do have extraordinary potential and opportunity to do the things of Jesus Christ. And we have an extraordinary hope in which to do it. Our mortal bodies will one day be immortal. We believe in the resurrection of the dead. I think we should say this when we are confronted by impossibilities. All the time. In 1948, Christians were kicked out of, all the missionaries were kicked out of China. And people said, we don't know if there are any Christians left. Today, a mere 70 years later, there are 100 million Christians in the nation of China. Who would have believed for that? Who would have believed for such an extraordinary miracle? And yet, People have prayed faithfully for that outcome because they believed in the God who raises the dead. They believed in the resurrection of the body. And that might be something that you're confronting now. You might confront in your life something impossible, something impossible to untangle. And yet, and yet, you can work, do the Lord, continue to do the Lord's work. Because you believe in the resurrection of the dead. Your mortal body will one day be immortal, so you can use that body and risk it for the sake of others. You can exhaust yourself in expressing God's love for the world. We can do the things that look impossible because we believe in the God who raised Jesus from the dead and we have in us that same life-giving spirit today. The resurrection era has started So what shall we do to do the work of the Lord? Well, here are some of the things that I think Paul would have us do, that build us up, that build us up in strength and in number. So let's excel in eating together and showing hospitality to one another. For every bond that we build with one another is a work of the Lord that we should excel in. Let's excel in sharing Jesus with children and young people, especially the next generation who are entering a world which is far less receptive to the gospel than before. There is no more important ministry we do than that. An hour spent next week, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, would be in a work of the Lord in which we should excel. Let's excel individually in growing in the knowledge of God, in becoming prayerful, Let's excel in kindness and generosity to one another and to our community. Let's excel in being the one in our workplace or in our family who is the peacemaker, who is a sign of Christ's love for our workplaces and our family. Let's be transformative of the the work which we do, of the law or of medicine or of finance or whatever, or education, whatever other business we have. Let's here be the place that people find healing and hope because we are a community of the resurrection. Are you feeling defeated, perhaps, by a lack of personal change in the presence of sin in your life? Keep working at it. It's worth it. That's work with a future. Are you overwhelmed by the inexhaustible needs of your neighbours? Keep excelling in serving them because the dead will one day be raised. Can you say no way to reconciliation with your colleague or with your classmate or with your workmate or with the person who lives in your building or with your brother or sister in Christ? Don't give up on it. 
That's the stuff of the kingdom of God. Your work in the Lord is not in vain. Do you despair that you will never reach your potential? You will be part of a much greater transformation, a transformation that has already been unleashed in you. You will be changed in a flash, in the twinkling of an eye, when that last trumpet of victory sounds. So, hallelujah. Thanks for listening. Please visit our website at www.stmarksdp.org to subscribe to our new episodes, browse more resources and find more information about the community of St. Mark's.